The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.deroshi-meyer.org. We're in the book of Isaiah, so I encourage you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 1. I wanted to follow up on just a couple comments from last week to help give, I hope, a little clarity. Number one, this has already been raised as a question to me today. I said that the prophets in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, are Old Covenant enforcers. They weren't part of the New Covenant. That's something that Jesus establishes. They were part of the Mosaic Covenant. That was the main legally binding agreement that they were part of between God and His people. Now, there's a number of covenants that we read about in the Old Testament. Who can think of the first one? First place that covenant, that term, shows up in the Bible. Even before Abraham. Noah. Noah, in Genesis 9, uh, we find out that God is establishing a covenant with Noah. Actually, it's not with Noah. It's with Noah and all creation. He's the main head or representative mediator of that covenant. And yet it's with all the world. And what does God declare in that covenant with Noah? Never again destroy the world with a flood. And so all of us are born into that covenant. It's a covenant that God made with all creation for all time up until the final judgment. When this age, so it's a covenant that is established for this age under the sun, from the fall up until Christ comes and makes all things right. The Noahic covenant. The, then we get Abraham, Steve, Abraham. And in the Abrahamic covenant, it anticipates two stages. First stage is, go, Abraham, to the land that I will show you, and there I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's going to become a people in a land. Second stage is, after you've arrived... You or the, those or the one who represents you needs to be a blessing so that through this channel, all the world will be blessed. Well, if you just think about the world being blessed, uh, the global scale, reconciliation between God and not just the Jews, but all the world, when does that come? Pardon? Pardon? Second coming? First coming? It's through Jesus. We know that, right? And it's happening right now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now make disciples of all nations. And it's fulfilling the promises given to Abraham. Jesus in Galatians 3.16 has said, He's the offspring. 
He's the seed. God didn't make the promise to seeds. He made it to the seed that is Christ. And if we are in Christ, all of us become Abraham's offspring, Jew and Gentile alike. Well, that's stage two of the Abrahamic covenant. But stage one of the Abrahamic covenant was Israel becoming a nation in the land, flourishing in the land as a people. And when does that happen? If blessing reaching the nations is stage two, and that happened in relation to Jesus' first and second coming, when does stage one of the Abrahamic covenant happen? When they leave Egypt. That's where they're called a nation for the first time, and they get settled in the land. Stage one of the Abrahamic covenant is the Mosaic covenant, but it was never designed to be the end. It was a temporary channel to arrive at the ultimate global kingdom. So when we say that the prophets are Mosaic covenant enforcers, what we're saying is that God placed them within redemptive history between the Noahic covenant and between the new covenant. Between that period, there is the Mosaic covenant fulfilling stage one of the Abrahamic covenant And God gives them marching orders for what they're supposed to look like in the land. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's unpacked most clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. And so when I say that they're ambassadors of the heavenly court, the prophets, ambassadors designed to indict and instruct in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant, and declaring curses and blessings or restoration blessings associated with the Mosaic Covenant, What I'm saying is that they're born in this window where the words that God gave through Moses and the covenant that he established is the baseline operative understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And it's specifically for Israel. But intriguingly, the prophets also can come in and they're not only able to judge Israel, who else do they judge? Foreign nations. We call them foreign nation oracles. And in doing so, they are, it appears to me, holding the people accountable to, not to a Mosaic covenant, they're not part of that, but all of a sudden they become Noahic covenant enforcers. That even in the Noahic covenant, the responsibility of mankind is to be surrendered to the Lord of all the earth. And if you don't, even though all the world will not be judged by water, you yourself individually might be judged, or your nation might get judged. God is the Lord of everything. And then in the midst of this, we have the Davidic covenant, which is built into the Mosaic covenant. And both of these point ahead, giving focus to the new covenant. Because the Davidic covenant is where a king underneath the Mosaic covenant is told, namely David... That one from your offspring is going to be that ultimate seed of Abraham who will reign and be the channel through which all the world will be blessed. So we have got a number of covenants. They're covenant enforcers. The primary covenant, because they're usually talking to Israel, is the Mosaic covenant. And yet they're living in light of hope for the new covenant and hope for the fulfillment of the promises bound up in the Davidic covenant. I hope that 
helps a little. <laughs> but all of this will help you the more that, this is my next slide, the more that you read your Bible and get your hands around the story. And the major high points of the story are these covenants. God starts at creation. He renews a covenant that he started at creation with Noah. He uses a word that is a renewal word, not a first-time word in Genesis chapter 9, suggesting that he had already established a relationship with his world way back in Genesis 1. And then he destroys everything by water, which is where Genesis 1 starts, right? Everything was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What the flood did was take creation in reverse order back toward the chaos that it started with. And so then, just as there was in the beginning, one man and one woman and three boys, we get Noah, his wife, and three sons. And there's all kinds of signs in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 that this is a restart. We're going to decreate and then recreate. And then we move on into the story. So the high points of the story are are these major covenants, starting with creation, moving into Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, the Christ covenant, namely the new covenant. And you want to get the story down and know where, when you hear events or when you hear people, where do I place them? Yeah, they are operating on a community scale. It's possible that the judges would, if the judges had been doing what they were supposed to do, that the prophets would not have been necessary, other than Moses, who set everything in place. And even the judges are working in accordance with what Moses said. He, uh, picture Moses is the one who establishes all the case law. My wife and I are watching Perry Mason right now on the one hand, and we're watching Matlock on the other. And you go into the law offices, it was the same in 1950 as it was in 1980, and you go, okay, so, and you, you see the law office, and there's all these books, and that's the cases, right? And the lawyer is, has to often go and assess, okay, my, is there, has any case looked exactly like this? Well, not really. But then they go and they look and see, well, there was comparable cases, and then those judges were supposed to take Moses' comparable case. He gives 613 instructions, which doesn't cover everyone's situation in all of time during the Mosaic Covenant. And so but the judges and the priests, working side by side, are supposed to use the established case law, and the basic principles, both of which Moses gives, and then use those to help guide and assess and clarify both civil and criminal issues. That's right. So the judges are simply using Moses, whereas with the prophets, they're coming in with um, a God directed mission that is, it's more personal, more immediate. The judges are never, were, were never told they were part of the heavenly court. But we saw that passage last week where uh, what's wrong? Oh. If they had stood in my counsel 
then they'd be speaking my word. The judges are never understood to have stood in God's heavenly council, but the prophets did. So they're special ambassadors who have a similar role to the judge, but they're not operating on an individual basis, except sometimes they call out the king. Usually they're calling out the community, and the judges didn't operate like that. The judges operated on an individual case-by-case basis. The prophets are working from a communal, there's communal sin. And they're coming now as the ambassador of the heavenly court with Moses in their back pocket to declare communal offenses. And it's because, and it's often the leaders who were leading the people astray, the judges were failing to do their job. What's on my mind right now is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 4. The officials within you are roaring lions. Your judges are like evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Your prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Your priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Well, there's four leader groups specified right there, all of which, had they been doing their job, Zephaniah would not have needed to come. But they weren't doing their job. They weren't bathing themselves and the people in the Word of God through Moses. They had set it aside, and so God had to send in His special ops called the prophets. Okay. I asked my wife, how many weeks should I take for introduction? And I thought, I'll try to do it in two. Well, let me just say a couple, couple things. One of the foundational principles in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that gives clarity to how you will be able to discern if they're a prophet of God or not is that they will come in and they will proclaim something about the future and then people will wait and see what happens. So... There were some major, major events that the prophets were consistently pointing to. Who can think of any? Exile. Exile. So, 723, 723, Isaiah begins preaching in 740. Think backwards. That means he is 17 years before 723, right? He begins preaching in 740, and one of the things he's saying is that if you don't surrender, judgment's going to come. And in 723, the northern kingdom of Israel gets exiled by Assyria. Isaiah is in Jerusalem preaching through that entire experience. And Hezekiah hears this preaching, and humbles himself before God and brings reformation in Judah that is not brought in the northern kingdom. But if you are the man, and and this is, I'm thinking about Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33, 33, I think. Ezekiel 33, 33 says... Know this, to you, you are to them, Ezekiel's preaching, you are to them but a singer of love songs. You're just an entertainer. That's what they thought the prophet was. You're just an entertainer. And Ezekiel in particular, he was a a playwright. He, He lived out his message more than any other prophet. God called him to do all these dramatizations of his message 
So put a backpack on and take a shovel and with your backpack on, in the presence of everyone, go out to the wall of the city and dig a hole in the wall while you've got your backpack on and then squeeze yourself through it. And everybody's just looking at him saying, there he goes again. So what's this one about? Ezzy? And he comes back and he says, now, so he acted it out. Now he declares, so it will be with you that all of you, when destruction comes, will be forced to take all that you can on your backs and you'll be shoved through the crevice and taken away to Babylon. To them, you're but a singer of love songs. But when it happens, as surely as it will, they will know that a prophet was in their their midst. 33-33 of Ezekiel. So So the question is, the prophets are speaking everywhere. False prophecy, false prophecy, false prophecy. And believe me, as we read the story of kings, it's very clear that... Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 20? Um, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are hanging out. Jehoshaphat's king of Judah, Ahab's the king of Israel. And Ahab's saying, let's go up and battle against one of these Transjordanian peoples. And Jehoshaphat's like, I don't know. And Ahab's like, look, I've got 400 prophets who've affirmed this is what we're supposed to do. And they were all ear ticklers. Yes, man prophecy was everywhere in the ancient world. And then Jehoshaphat wisely says, well, they're all prophets of Baal. Do you have any prophets of Yahweh? (laughs) And Ahab says, well, there is one. (laughs) His name is Micaiah, and he never never is a yes man. He never says what I want to hear. So Micaiah comes in, and Ahab's like, should we go to battle? And Micaiah's like, yeah. Go ahead, go on to battle. And Ahab's like, you're fibbing, aren't you? (laughs) And Micaiah says, yes, and know this, you will go forth, and this day you will die. Now all that gets prepped by a vision that you and I get to see that we don't know that they're seeing, if anybody else saw it. But we get a vision of heaven, the heavenly council, and God comes out and He says to all of His angelic beings, who among you will put a deceptive spirit in the mouth of the prophets? That's big God theology. And one of the messengers said, I will go. And down he went, and then it says, they went out into battle. Ahab, I mean, the kings are supposed to be at the front. And they go out into battle, and Jehoshaphat is dressed like a king. Everybody could identify that he was the king. And the armies went toward, I'm trying to remember how it played out, like they went toward Jehoshaphat, and, oh, that's not Ahab. And they couldn't find Ahab, because... He had not put on his kingly clothing that day. He just decided to look like one of everybody else so that he could hide. And then it says, and by, this is how the narrative works, after the prophecy has come, after the vision from the heavenly council has already been given, and by chance, a stray arrow flew and hit Ahab in the heart. That's how the narrative goes. And are we supposed to be thinking, oh yeah, by chance, 
by chance, God shot his thunder lightning bolt down and it zapped the king just as he had said. So here's how I'm understanding. You've got all these false prophets and like think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You've got 300 prophets of Baal or whatever the number was in 1 Kings 18. 300 prophets of Baal, one prophet of Yahweh. He thought he was the only one and God said, no, I've saved 7,000 that are my remnant. But he thought he was the only one. And that day it was one prophet of Yahweh, 300 prophets of Baal, and yet, somehow the story of Elijah gets lifted up and none of us know any of the teachings, the activities of any of those other prophets. How did it happen? How is it that this book, Isaiah, got lifted up when nobody wanted to listen to Isaiah? Now, there are some, there's not much evidence, but at least Hezekiah listened to Isaiah. In the book of Ezekiel, he had a 30-year ministry, and we see absolutely zero, zero evidence that anyone ever surrendered and listened to this prophet's voice. And yet, his book shows up in our Bible, and all the other false prophets are gone. Why? Because of 723, because of 586, and because of 5.16. 7.23, the prophets are saying, Assyria is coming, Assyria is coming, and they come. And all the yes-man prophets are shown to be false, and all of a sudden our Bible grows. Not because it becomes the Word of God, because it's recognized, finally, that is the Word of God. Then they say, 586 is coming. Babylon is going to come and destroy you, Judah. If you don't repent, judgment is on its way. No, it's not. We're safe. Jeremiah in chapter 7 says, What are you saying to me? He's preaching at the temple. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. God's presence is here. He wouldn't let it get destroyed. We're all fine. Peace. Peace. That's what he says you're proclaiming. I tell you, If you don't take God seriously and humble yourselves before Him, judgment will come upon you. Ezekiel gets the vision that the presence of God lifts up from Jerusalem and leaves, giving Babylon complete freedom to rape and pillage and destroy as judgment on the people who were not ultimately a people of God. But in doing so, Jeremiah is shown to be a prophet of the Lord. Ezekiel is shown to be, indeed, a prophet of the Lord. Isaiah is preaching between 740 to 700 B.C. And he's going to name a coming deliverer by name. His name is going to be Cyrus. After your exile by Babylon, whom he also names... Babylon is not a serious power in Isaiah's day. Assyria is top dog. Yet he's able to look ahead through the days when Assyria will have waned, Babylon will have risen, they will destroy Jerusalem. Isaiah anticipates all of it. And then he says, one named Cyrus. Cyrus isn't born. This is 150 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. Babylon is a massive power, and yet Jeremiah said, 70 years, that's all it's going to take. 70 years, and exile is going to come to an end. Then, 538, Cyrus comes, 
Babylon had stretched themselves out from Ethiopia all the way to India. And yet they were miles wide and an inch deep. And so Cyrus comes in, a neighbor from the northeast in Persia, simply knocks on the door of the Babylonian gates. We have all this written right down. This is what happened. His army showed up. They knocked on the door. The gates were opened. The keys were given. No blood was shed. And the power of the world shifted from Babylon to Persia in an instant. Everything that was Babylon's became Persia's. And they made a strong kingdom that lasted 300 years. But every, and then what God had said, so that's going to happen, 539, Israel, sorry, 539, Cyrus takes, I said 538, 538 is when he told Israel they could go back to the land. 539 is when he took over Babylon. And then the other promise was that the temple would be restored, and 516, it happens. All these markers, I believe, were creating, were helping our Bible, people discover, recognize, oh, that was God's word. That was not God's word. And so all the false prophets get pushed aside and God's word is exalted. All right. Now, my second slide. This is from my wife. She didn't type it. She just encouraged me to say this. Last week, we we took a fair amount of time to look at details. We were looking at footnotes in our Bible, right? The little letters that send us to the margin, and we were tracking down cross-references. And what we were doing was reading the Bible for depth. And the reality is, though, that We can't always do it this way. There's different seasons. I remember my wife with young, young children struggling to find moments in her day. She couldn't read the Bible for depth. She couldn't read the Bible for distance. She had to put verses on three-by-five cards and just put them in different spots in the house just to get her moments, moments while she's brushing her teeth, remembering that... Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those who seek me will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Just letting her in those moments, just seeing the scripture written on a a three-by-five card. There's different seasons of life. There's craziness at work and craziness with uh, funneling teenagers all around. And that those are real, and God knows they're real. So... We can't always do what we were doing last week. But, but here's the thing. If you don't ever do it, you will be among those whom Paul says, by now you should have been teachers and instill your drinking milk. You don't want to be there. So what I want to encourage is some of you try to read through the whole Bible in a year. That's beautiful. Pastor John has done it. I don't know, for 30 years. Every single year he's reading through the whole Bible. But he's also getting, because of the nature of who he is in ministry, his vocation is also letting him read for depth all the time. Most of you in here can't set that as your goal. I'm going to read for distance and for depth all the time. 
And so you've got you've to weigh things out, prayerfully saying, where does God have me right now? I'm going to join a precept Bible study, or I'm going to hop into Abigail's Wednesday night Bible study, and in this moment, for this season, I'm going to dig into Colossians as deeply as I can. I'm going to go into 1 John and just let myself be bathed with, with riches, and I'm going to be forced with help, other people helping me, to learn how to ask questions that I never knew I wasn't asking. To study, to learn about tools. Where I could go if I have this question. There's far better things than Google. And taking the time to learn how to do this when questions rise. And yet also allowing yourself a good balance with reading for distance. Because it's when you read for distance that you're going to be able to get Broad picture, feel the weight and the scope of all this glory, the whole story. If all you're doing is looking at trees, you'll miss the forest. But if all you're doing is looking at the forest, you're going to miss some of the detail and the beauty that God has given us in the trees. So I'm encouraging a lifelong pattern of reading both for depth and for distance. But just know, free yourself. I can't do it all at one time. So sometimes you might take a year and you say, or the next six months, I'm going to just spend the six months in Isaiah. Or I'm going to spend this next six months in James. Isaiah, 66 chapters. James, five chapters. Thanks, God. Five chapters. Have you ever thought I could spend five months in only five chapters of the Bible? Pastor John preached 150 sermons in Romans. If we would have kept going, we'd still be in Deuteronomy. We took three years in Deuteronomy, and I taught Deuteronomy 5 through 10, 11. That's as far as we got in three years. And yet, we took two years and did an Old Testament survey. Just flying over, going down to some valleys, then going back up, flying over, and seeing the bigger scope of things and how it points to Christ. So, you want to learn to use your Bible well because this is the means God gave us to to meet Him. So, you want to be able to recognize Old Testament illusions. My friend Ricky Watts, I've told this story before, Australian who comes to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary where I did my grad school. He's sitting in a large lecture hall of 150 students, brand new, fresh off the plane, into the country, and the professor says four score and seven years ago, and then kept talking. And Ricky, the Australian, hears that, and he spends the next hour before break trying to figure out what happened 87 years ago. Where, where did that go? How did that fit? And he, he didn't know. He had to go out into the hallway and say to his brand new friend, what, what happened 87 years ago? I, I missed the rest of the lecture trying to put all this together. Oh, 87 years ago. 87 years ago? He never said 87. Four score and seven. Oh, oh. Well, that was just what? 
Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived or so dedicated can long endure. But all he had to say was four score and seven. And all the Americans had something come into their mind. They were able to connect it in space and time. But poor Ricky missed it. (laughs) Because he didn't know the history. And most of you do not know the history of the Bible. And so you're reading your scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments. You're not seeing where the prophets are alluding to their Bible. You're not seeing where the New Testament is filled, filled with echoes and allusions of scripture. So, reading your Bible helps you recognize Old Testament allusions in the Old Testament and Old Testament allusions in the New. It gives you clarity to the whole Bible storyline. It helps you recall biblical promises. I was just with a dad who's just saying, I'm struggling to even remember them. My heart is so heavy, I'm just struggling to remember the Bible's promises. Step one, just start reading. Just start reading. Stand in awe of our big God. This is where we're going to meet Him. Through His Word. And if we can get into our study today, we're going to see this is amazing. The the picture of God and the seeing of the Savior and the, the relishing of the Gospel that I find in this text that I hope you can see there too. So just try to set up a diet of balance and free yourself from guilt. Just stay in the Word. But I'm encouraging you, don't follow the same pattern all the time. If you don't have the opportunity, like I do, to let this be your vocation, then you've got to set a balance of depth reading and distance reading. Because both are extremely beneficial, and you need both over the long haul to meet our God, to savor the forest, and to climb the trees. All right? All right. Well, Pastor Chuck took us a long time today, so we will uh, we'll start. Now, I was faced with a challenge, and that is this. Last week we covered Think in Terms of Oracles, and I still had three principles that I'm supposed to cover in the next 20 minutes. Pay attention to history. Remember the covenant and the canon and see and savor Christ in the gospel. And I'm just using Isaiah 1 as kind of a template for helping us think about how should we think about prophets. So these are the questions that I'm asking along with others, but these are the the main framework that distinguishes prophecy, the questions I'm asking here from other places. And last week we considered oracles and we, we looked at What are the different ways that the prophets talk? Indictment, instruction, warning, and hope. And then we come into history, and all I'm going to say right now is just, if you take your green sheet, take your green sheet and turn to page two of your green sheet. What you see is a scope of Israel's history, it lays, out, lays it out in, in uh, 
in picture form, and I, I want you to be able to use this. This is what it's supposed to look like. These little dots just didn't show up. But Israel's history starts with Saul, David, Solomon. This is the kingdom history, and then the kingdom splits. And you just want to be able to, as you're reading through your Bible, it will serve you to know where does it fit. Are we in the united monarchy or the divided monarchy? And and be able to note that. And because we're focused on Isaiah 740 to 700, he's fitting right up here in the days of Hezekiah. You want to know that there were 20 kings in the north and 20 kings in the south during the divided kingdom. All 20 in the north are given a bad rap. 18 of the 20 in the south are given a bad rap. There were only two, Hezekiah and Josiah, that were viewed as good kings in the line of David. There are 10 dynasties, 10 dynasties between... um, 930 to 723, 10 dynasties in the north. Between 930 and 586 in the south, there's one dynasty, the dynasty of David. That's good to know. And then you'll see on the back, on the back sheet, I simply list all the kings and identify where they fall. So if you read names in Scripture the names of certain kings, you can get a sense where do they relate in the divided kingdom, where do they relate to what was happening over in Judah or in Israel, and how close are they to the exile of of, uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south? History. Keep it in mind, that was my point. The prophets, what you also see is, is this which simply lays out where the prophets are in relation to the major periods, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and how they're related. So while Hosea and Amos are preaching up in the north, Isaiah's preaching in the south. They're contemporaries. So when you read on the sheet where it compares that the northern kingdom was flourishing with wealth and the southern kingdom was struggling, it helps you read the story stories because Hosea and Amos are battling problems with prosperity that Judah doesn't have. So reading history helps. But what I want to do is, so you've got that as a tool, I want to jump all the way down to this issue of finding Christ. And just, I mean, this morning as I was going through this, I was just reveling, reveling um, in the text, and, and in my senses, I'm not going to get to revel very long. But I was just standing in awe of the, of the way God knit this book together. It just elevated my soul. So, seeing and savoring Christ in the gospel is something I always want to do when I approach the prophets because this is what we hear in the New Testament. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. What does He mean by all? I think He means all. 
Just after this, he goes down and he talks about the promise given to Moses that there would be a prophet like him. And then it says, and Samuel and all the prophets after him also, also, Moses, then Samuel, and all the other ones following him proclaimed the days that we are living in now. God's prophets, not the false prophets. We're talking about, yeah, the the real biblical Yahweh prophets. They all proclaimed it. And so I, as a Zephaniah guy, go into Zephaniah, it says that I should be looking for proclamations of Christ's suffering in a book that never mentions the Messiah once. And yet, Peter says, all. Zephaniah included, proclaimed the sufferings of the Christ. And I'm called to say, okay, show me. Where are they at? And that was last fall when we looked at that and we saw magnificent pictures of the Messiah in the book of Zephaniah, even though he's never mentioned by name, nor is a royal person ever exalted other than Yahweh himself. But we saw him in the day of the Lord's sacrifice. that The day of the Lord is, is war and it's sacrifice. That's how it's portrayed. That like the animal that was put on the altar and God's wrath came down upon that animal rather than coming on the sinner. That if you portray the coming day of the Lord when God will right all wrongs and truly incinerate all the sinners. And yet this is a book about a remnant that is preserved through judgment, then all of a sudden I step back and I think about, okay, Isaiah 53 was written before Zephaniah. And Isaiah 53 is about a man who would represent a people, not only the Jews, but all the nations, and become a guilt offering on the altar of God. Then all of a sudden I I look ahead and then I see in the New Testament that they're portraying the day of the Lord as something that happened at the cross. That the future judgment that awaits all the rest of the world was purchased for you and I back there 2,000 years ago. That all the wrath and fire that will pour down on on the people as a future sacrifice, atoning God, not on a substitute but on a sinner, all of that wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross on my behalf. And I found Jesus in the book. That the day of the Lord is what Jesus bears on my behalf so that I can be among the purified remnant that Zephaniah celebrates. Every prophet points to Jesus. To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. All the prophets proclaimed this forgiveness and Isaiah is among them. In fact, he's probably the chief one. Concerning this salvation that you and I are enjoying, the prophets who prophesied about what? About the grace that was to be yours. What were they doing? They had their Bibles open. They're looking at Moses. They're searching and inquiring carefully. What did God say through, through Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2? What was that? that a king would come and that he would be called the Messiah, the Anointed One. They're looking, they're they're searching and inquiring carefully, inquiring what person, what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
All the prophets are doing this. They are men of the word, men of the book, and they're searching. They didn't know his name, but they had a sense of, that he, of his person. They didn't know the time precisely, but they did have a sense of when. And Isaiah is going to lay it all out. He captures prophetic theology in his book in amazing ways. We're going to see the scope of history and the underneath this massively huge God. So now I have to ponder. Um, I can't rush through this. So... Let's look at Isaiah 1 for refreshment here. Anticipating our next time together, if you write in your Bible, which I hope you do, let's read through this together. And as we do, I'm going to make some notes that I want you to keep in mind, and you could even follow up on your own, and then we'll pick up here next time. So we're going to read through this out loud. I need three people like I did last week. We're going to read the scripture out loud together, and the rest of you can follow along. Who would be up for that? And if you raise your hand, also give me your name. Brother Rick? Justin, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Rick, you can read 1 through 9. Actually, just 2 through 9. Justin, you can read 10 through 20, and Tom, you can read 21 through 31. But get to the end and then pause because I'm going to make comments as we walk through the chapter. And we're going to come come back to this chapter in two weeks. Now, this is the introduction to the book. Look at 1.1. It says, Isaiah was preaching during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It's during the days of Ahaz and Hezekiah that the northern kingdom fell. This introduction appears to have been written after all the rest of the book was written. It sets something, it it gives us a word at the front end of what his life was like at the back end. You got it? It's an introduction to the book, and the book covers all this history, and then he fronts the introduction. And so, What's described here, when your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your presence foreigners devour your land, what we have happening is that Assyria came down in 723 and destroyed the northern kingdom. Samaria was demolished, and the people were slaughtered, and the remnant exiled, except for the poorest of the land. Now, in that moment, what happens is that Ahaz and Hezekiah, they were ruling, they had an overlapping rule. They, all of a sudden, surrender, fearing the great king of Assyria, and they give in to him. And they start paying him tribute. And so Assyria doesn't destroy Judah in 723. They go past Judah, and they head down to Egypt, and they start demolishing and overcoming Egypt. Well, two decades pass, and then they are on their return trip. 
And during this time, Hezekiah has humbled himself before the Lord, repented of fearing Assyria, and stopped paying tribute to this massive world empire. So on the return trip from the south, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, is ornery because Judah has stopped paying taxes. But he's got to go through, he's got to go through Israel in order to get home. Israel is the land between everything. So, we've got... Here's the Sinai. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's the Persian Gulf. And here is the Tigris and Euphrates. Babylon is here. Assyria is up here. Persia is over here. And Israel is right here. And what's right here? The Arabian Desert. So now Assyria has moved on down. They destroyed the northern kingdom, but Jerusalem still stands. They've been down here. They don't travel through the sea. They don't travel through the desert. God put Israel, it says in Ezekiel 5.5, at the center of the world. This is theological geography. This right here, along this water, along this edge, and then down the Nile is what we call the Fertile Crescent. That's where all the peoples of the ancient world lived. They hadn't spread out to the far reaches. This was the main center of the earth, and Israel was right in the center of that. Because if Mesopotamia wanted to expand their power, they had to go through the land between. If Egypt, when they were strong, wanted to expand their power through commerce or war, they had to go through the land between. So Egypt is now, Assyria is now on its return trip, and what started happening, the north had already been decimated, but now they start destroying all the border cities. And Sennacherib sends a messenger up here. We read about it in, his, in Isaiah 36 and 37. Remember how the messenger, Rav Shaka, shows up in Jerusalem. Who are you, O Hezekiah, to think that your God is strong enough to stand against me. He wasn't strong enough to stop me from defeating the north. And they worship Yahweh. So who are you to think that you're strong enough? Now, what we know from archaeology, and this is amazing, that we would even find something like this. But one of these cities in the south was called Lachish. And we have found in Jerusalem a potsherd, a broken pot that had etched into that pot the fires, the the, um, signal fires of Lachish have gone out. So, you've seen the Lord of the Rings. They're coming. They're coming. Meaning Assyria is on their way to Jerusalem, to destroy Hezekiah. And then we read about on Sennacherib's, on the Sennacherib seal. It's not the Sennacherib seal. 
Anyway, up there in the Assyrian temple, what we've seen is his entire account of his destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, I put Hezekiah up in Jerusalem like a bird in the cage. But he fails to talk about the fact that when he showed up with his troops, God wiped out 80,000, 85,000 by an angel of death and sent Assyria running back home. But it was only because Hezekiah knelt and prayed. But now Isaiah's on the scene. And he's proclaiming, your city is, your, your land is desolate. Your people, I mean, the texts that Assyria included, probably at some point I'll, I'll show some pictures because it'll fit into our discussion, but the texts were included by pictures. Temple walls filled with the account of what he did to Lachish. You see Jews with impaled naked bodies. You see piles of skulls that they left outside the city in order to tell the world, any passerby, this is what will happen to you if you fail to surrender to the king of Assyria, the great king. And Isaiah's there proclaiming, is this what you want? Your land is is absolutely desolate and broken. You've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Salt pits, that's all that's left. The fire of God has come down. And, and, And to call it Sodom and Gomorrah, it puts all this in the context of this is not random actions from the north. This is divine judgment in accordance with the covenant curses. Moses said, this is what would come if you failed to be a people whose hearts were for the God. And Leviticus 26 tells us, when such judgment comes, it's supposed to humble people and make them say, I don't want to be here. Forgive me, O God, and get me back into right relationship with you. And yet Leviticus 26 says five different times, I brought judgment on you, but you failed to repent. I brought judgment on you, and yet... I'm sorry, I will bring judgment on you, but if you fail to repent, then I'll bring more judgment on you. And if you fail to repent, then I'll bring more judgment on you, climaxing in exile. Anticipation of where we're going. Look at verse 11. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. All of their offerings are being brought, and God did not delight in them. He did not take pleasure in them. That's the exact same word that we'll read in Isaiah 53.10. It was God's pleasure to crush His Son, to put Him to grief, that He might become a guilt offering. Their sacrifices would not cut it. So God would ultimately bring the sacrifice. He would not be pleased with theirs, but He would be absolutely pleased with His. Wash yourselves, verse 16. Remove the evil of your deeds. Cease to do evil. Learn. Learn to do good. And yet they remain ignorant. They do not know. And so in Isaiah 54... God will say, in that day, they will all be taught by the Lord. 
But here, the call is, learn it on your own. Do it, do it. That's how the Mosaic Covenant talked. Circumcise the foreskin of your own heart and be no longer stubborn. But ultimately, it would have to be changed by God circumcising the heart. The ultimate goal, verse 18. This is the promise that's the foundation. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This screen is white. This is white. But it's not white like snow or white like wool. There's a difference. The color might be the same, but there's a different nature to what's on this board and what's on that screen than what we have in snow and in wool. What's the difference? Uh, That wasn't my point. Three-dimensional. The object is three-dimensional, but the, the color itself. What's different? Pardon? It's God-made, not man-made, meaning that the direct, the direct agent is God. It's natural. This is not natural white. This is man-generated white. But what he appears to be saying is that there's going to be a, a new nature, a new creation. That's the foundational promise. You're going to be white like snow is white. You're going to be white like wool is white. Like, as it comes out, this is what is there. This, it is white by its nature. And they're not white right now. And they can't make themselves white. And this book is going to clarify, even though it's going to call them, make yourselves white, make yourselves clean. Ultimately, they're going to recognize we can't do it, and God's going to give the answer. He's going to make them this way. A new creation's. We start by describing the crisis of the nation, the religious situation. I will not accept your burnt offerings. But now we get the social problem. It's just specified right there. She was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now no more. She loves bribes. She runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. I wonder what God will say to His church. Not to the nation. To the church. Will He receive our worship when it's likely that many of us don't know the name of a poor person or are working for justice? This is very foundational in prophets. We're going to see this, and and I want us to ponder the way this is close to God's heart. See verse 24, the therefore? That's what sets the stage from identifying the crisis, situation, and problem, the resolution in the prophets, that word therefore, it always shows up. This is like a court case, and now you're coming to the conclusion. You've made the indictment, now you're going to Establish the sentence. Therefore, in light of everything I've said, therefore, this is what's going to happen. And it has both threat and hope. And, and where, 
And we're sitting here saying, okay, this is the introduction. All the prophets tell us about Christ. And I want to find him here. He hasn't mentioned anything about a Messiah. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as the first, your counselors as at the beginning. That is in the days of Moses, I think. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. They're not righteous, but in that day, you're going to be able to be tagged that. How, do, how does Israel move from unjust to righteous? A city of righteousness, the faithful city. And then it says, with passives, divine passives, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent. This isn't for everyone. You see how verse 27 really calls people to say, am I going to be in that group or not? Zion will, those who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. And it raises the question, how's that going to happen? And the rest of Isaiah is going to unpack it. Those words, righteousness, justice, are going to be massive in this book. And they're going to be a channel through which we're going to see Christ exalted in massive ways. So that's, come, come back. Next week, we get to, for a kickoff of Global Focus, we're going to hear from the Morgans. Morgans, who are on home assignment for um, till next till next March, they're home from Chad, which is in northern Africa. This is very different climate. You've had to probably buy long underwear, um, and they're going to share with us just to kick off our our global focus. Share with us what God's done in them and what their vision is, and then two weeks from now we'll come back and, Lord willing. We're just going to spend the whole hour, maybe, I pray, just walking through Isaiah and looking how, how, tracking our footnotes, and looking how Isaiah 1 anticipates where the rest of the book is going, and how the rest of the book builds off of the, everything that's listed here in Isaiah 1. That's, that's what I'm hoping to, and in the process, savoring Christ in the gospel. May the Lord bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.